The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. It is a pleasure to be before you today and an honor. And uh, I will try to the best of my abilities to expound on the Word of God. Uh, so as you may all know, the summer's theme for Wednesday night worship is villains of the Bible. Today we will be co covering the villain Haman, who is found in the book of Esther. So if you, if you can please open up your Bibles to the book of Esther, uh, being that we will be covering almost seven chapters today, I will only be reading chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And it should be on the back here in a second. And it says, After these things, King Ashuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servant, servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's commands? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand for he had told them he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ashuhuerus. Let us pray. Lord, we come before you today and we ask that you may teach us through your word, even if it is through a broken vessel. Father, help us to see Christ. Help us to see the gospel through all of these events occurring in, this chap in these chapters. Lord, transform us. Help us to see that you are with us, and that there is nothing that happens under heaven or on the earth that is not part of your will that is not under your control. Thank you for all that you do and be with us in these moments. In your son's name we pray, amen. So I have three simple points for you today. Point number, point number one, the rise of Haman. Point number two, the tables turn. And point number three, the defeat. So before we get into our points today, it is important that we lay down some groundwork and learn some history. If we, look at verse, if we look at verse 1 of chapter 3, the text introduces Haman as an Agagite. Agagite means that he comes from King Agag, who was king of the Amalekites. If you know Bible history well, you know that there is a long time beef between the, the Israelites and the Amalekites. It's like, a, it's like the history of the Crips and the Bloods who have a long history of beef with each other, oppositions against each other, two gangs who go against each other. 
So through Bible history, there are a bunch of accounts where the Israelites and the Amalekites just go at it. Like these two groups of people do not like each other. The Amalekites are enemies of, of Israel and enemies of God himself. One of the first oppositions we see between these two groups of people is in Exodus 17. The Amalekites are the first group of people to confront and oppose the Israelites after coming out of Egypt. And if you remember the story well, Moses sends Joshua out to fight the Amalekites, and every time uh, Moses raises his hands, the Israelites would start to win. And then when Moses would put down his hands, the Amalekites would win. So Aaron and Hur sat Moses down on a rock and held up his hands for, for, uh, for Joshua so, so Joshua can win, so his men can conquer against the Amalekites. What is interesting is that afterwards, God, God tells Moses to write down the event as a memorial and to write down that God will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, meaning he was going to kill them all off. We see in the book of Judges how the Amalekites would join forces with other nations to come against the, the Israelites. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, the Lord commands Saul to completely wipe out the Amalekites. He commands Saul to kill off all the people, all the livestock, and not to leave any of it alive. But Saul fails miserably and does not do what he was told to do. He does not do what God commanded him to do. He leaves a portion of the livestock alive, and even, even more than that, he leaves King Agag alive, who he was the first one who should have died. And Samuel was furious with Saul. Samuel asked for the king to be brought to, brought to him, and Samuel hacks King Agag to pieces. Now, even though the Amale most of the Amalekites were killed off that day, it seems like there was a remnant of those that escaped because through the reign of Saul, David has some encounters with the Amalekites. Second Samuel chapter 8 lists the Amalekites as some of the people that were subdued by David. But there's more. If we look at First Chronicles chapter 4, verses 24 to 43, we see that the descendants of Simeon, who are sons of Jacob, conquered the remaining remnant of the Amalekites, which leads us to the book of Esther. There is some real irony if we look at the family trees of the characters in the book of Esther, we see Haman the Agagite. Haman is a direct descendant of King Agag, who Samuel hacked into pieces. And he and his sons are probably, probably the last remaining Amalekites alive. Literally, if they die, the Amalekites will be completely extinct. Now, if we look at Mordecai, who is one of the main characters of the book of Esther, we will see some facts, fascinating facts about him. Chapter 2 in the book of Esther states that Mordecai is a descendant of Kish of the tribe of Benjamin. Kish is in fact the father of King Saul, and Saul is the one who led the mass execution of the Amalekites. So this is like really awkward, right? I can imagine Mordecai looking at Haman thinking like, how is this guy still alive, right? And Haman is over there thinking uh, about Mordecai like this, this, his ancestors tried to kill us off. And you know how some people say it's only awkward if you make it awkward? Well, this, is, this situation is nothing but awkward. Uh, so we see that, the, that between these two characters, there is a long history of war, of killing, of opposition. 
which is what fuels this fire so much more, which leads us to our first point, the rise of Haman. During this, during this time, the Israelites were under Persian rule. The Babylonians had been conquered. Now the Jewish people were under the rule and the mercy of the Persian Empire. Over the Persian Empire is a king by the name of Ashuerus, which historians know him, know him as Xerxes, who in history is known for trying to conquer the Greeks. So before chapter 3 of Esther, we see that the king was, he was uh, having a good time with his friends. He was throwing a party, a banquet, and he was having some drinks. And it says that his heart was merry, and he wants to showcase his wife, the queen. So Queen Vashti refuses to go out, and out of rage and afraid all women will follow in disobedience, King Ashuerus downgrades the queen and strips her of all her nobility. Then the king holds a beauty pageant and chooses Esther to be the new queen. And if you don't know the story well, I'll give you a spoiler. Esther is a Jew and she is Mordecai's cousin. Fast forward a few verses, we come to chapter three. Haman, Haman is promoted to second in the kingdom. The king commands everyone to bow down and pay homage to Haman. And it seems similar to when Nebuchadnezzar's statue was built and he commanded every, everyone to bow down and worship, worship the statue. But Mordecai was one person who did not bow down or pay homage to Haman. This act was far too profound to be given to man. Mordecai knew that this level of worship and honor is due only to God himself. Mordecai knew the first commandments, I am the Lord thy God, you shall have no other gods before me. Mordecai, in the midst of being in a foreign land under a different empire, he was still fully devoted to worshiping God and God alone. I also believe that Haman being an Amalekite was another reason Mordecai did not bow down to Haman. Haman, a descendant of the Amalekites, is not only an enemy of the Jews, but also of God, which I also think plays a part of why Mordecai did not pay homage to him. When Haman saw Mordecai's refusal to bow down to him and that he was a Jew, he was furious. He was outraged. He was angered. He probably did some homework on Mordecai and found out who he was and was filled with even more fury and wrath. Verse 6 says, But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone and sought to destroy all the Jews. So killing Mordecai would not have been enough for this man. In order to gratify his deep desire for revenge, he seeks to destroy a whole nation just because one guy refused to bow down to him. This Haman is a wicked person. He is prideful. He is hateful. He is conniving. He is deceitful. The very fact that you want to wipe out a whole race just because one person did not bow down to you shows the roots of sin and wickedness that are so deeply embedded in his heart. So what does Haman do? Look at this, Haman and his friends cast lots. So in other words, by casting lots, Haman wants to find his luckiest day to assign the massacre of the Jews. But we will see how casting lots for this will be reversed onto him and judgment upon him will be pronounced. He then goes to, king, to the king and says in verse 8, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Haman's words are filled with truth and falsehood. Yes, the people of Israel, Israel were dispersed, 
but he blames the whole nation for what he thinks a crime was done to him by one man. Then only to bribe the king with 10,000 talents of silver. This which he offered equal to about two-thirds of annual income of Persian revenue. If we convert that amount to today's currency, that will equal to roughly $96 million. So just let that sink in. He offers $96 million to, to the king to annihilate a whole race. And the king quickly accepts the offer and hands Haman his signet ring. So with this signet ring, Haman is able to write any law he wants and seal it with the king's ring, and it cannot be bypassed or broken, not even by the king himself. The seal of the ring is not like the seal on a water bottle where you just twist it and break it. The seal is sacred. By law, anything sealed by the ring cannot be broken. So Haman takes the scribes and has them write an edict which contains orders of what day and time the people were to be killed, destroyed, all Jews, men, women, and children, and to plunder their goods, which will be, on, which will be the 13th day of the 12th month. He takes the king's signet ring and seals it so that it cannot be undone. And on top of that, he has copies of the documents sent to all the peoples of every province showing what horrible acts will be done. Does this sound familiar to you? It seems like he is trying to take revenge for what Saul and Samuel did to his ancestors. He wants to exact that same punishment. He puts himself in the role of God and with a, and with a proud heart pronounces judgment on the Jewish people. But what Haman does not realize is that God Almighty is ready to fight for his people. The Israelites might be in exile due to their idolatry and disobedience, but that is the rightful discipline of the Lord upon his people. Because they are under, his, under the discipline of God does not mean that the Lord is not with them. This is the same God that ages ago told them, I am who I am. He says, I am the great I am. This is the same God that tells the Apostle John, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And this simpleton thinks that he can come and wage war against God's people and get away with it? Absolutely not. Later, we will see the judgment pronounced upon him. But let's get back to the story. So word gets out, the Jews will be destroyed. So imagine being a Jew in exile and receiving a letter with the exact time and date that you will die. That must have caused such havoc in their lives. When Mordecai found out about this deed, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes in order to mourn. It says, chapter 4, verse 1, he went out in the midst of the city and he cried with a loud and bitter cry. Many of the other Jews were mourning, weeping, and fasting. Even Queen Esther, when she found out, mourned and fasted. There was a dark gloom of mourning over the people. Brothers and sisters, from this we ought to see that the people of God will always be persecuted. One of the commentaries in my study Bible says, God may withdraw his restraining hand both to make clear the virulence, hostility of evil men, and to induce a deeper dependence on himself among those who trust in him. People will rise up against God's children, but the Lord will be the one to fight for us. 
He is the one who is in control and who ordains the circumstances. But in times of affliction, we should not put our trust in money and politicians and other people, but we, must, we, we should most certainly hope in God. Instead of running to other things for comfort and hope, we are to run to the Lord, to seek him out, to seek his counsel, to seek his comfort. Psalm 62, verses 7 to 8 says, On God rest my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. We ought to run wholeheartedly to the Lord in every circumstance, pouring our heart out to him, knowing he is a refuge for us. One day, talking to Pastor Mike about issues going on in my life, he told me something that stuck with me. And he said, our circumstances should not affect the way that we seek the Lord. And that is true. We ought to seek him through every circumstance. There's a book by Ligon Duncan called When Pain is Real and God Seems Silent. In this book, he said this, praising God in the midst of pain is one of the most profound testimonies that a believer or a congregation can ever give to the Lord. No pain or heartbreak should ever take praise from our lips. Now, even though the, the lives of the Jews were at stake, Mordecai lost no hope in the Lord. When Esther is afraid of going before the king to appeal the edicts, Mordecai tells her, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from another place, for the Jews from another place. Why? Because he sought God and poured out his heart before him and trusted in, in him. The Lord hears the prayer of his people and the circumstances start to change, which leads us to our second point, the table's turn. God allows all of this to happen. He allows Haman to rise to power and seem like he succeeded and almost annihilating all the Jews. My study Bible says this, God is able to deliver and protect his people through the providential orderings of circumstances, not just through dramatic miracles. From chapters 5 to 7, we see the tables start to turn. We see the favor of the Lord upon his people. After three days of fasting, Esther goes before the king to appeal the edict. This was a life or death situation because the law stated if anyone would go before the king without being called, he will be put to death unless the king holds out his golden scepter and then that person may live. Esther walks into the court and it says she won favor in his sight, speaking of the king. The king asks her, what can I do for you? I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Esther just says, if it please you, come to this banquet I have set up for you and bring Haman. They have the banquet, and Esther, and Esther says, come back tomorrow for another banquet. There I will tell you my request. So Haman leaves the banquet, sees Mordecai in the gates, and is filled with wrath and hatred that Mordecai pays him no mind. But he, but he calms down, he goes home, and when he gets home, he starts bragging to his wife, to his friends, and to his family of how prosperous he is. He counts his sons, 
He looks at the splendor of his riches. He even says, Queen Esther invited me to this banquet only with the king. So he's feeling himself. He's feeling like the big guy. He's feeling like the boss. It reminds me of, of kids on social media who, who post pictures of themselves with a bunch of $10 bills to make it seem like they have a lot of money. But the funny thing is that he is not satisfied. He says, all of this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. So his wife tells him, just make a gallows 50 cubits high and hang Mordecai on it. So that's exactly what he does. He has the gallows made, thinking he will hang Mordecai on it the next morning. But that same night, King Asuhuerus couldn't sleep. And he says, bring me the book of memorable deeds. And the first thing that they open up to is how Mordecai helped save the king's life. In chapter 2, Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate, and here's two of the king's eunuchs planning to kill the king. Mordecai tells Esther, Esther tells the king, they investigated and the, and the matter is true. So they hung the, those eunuchs. Then it was recorded in the book of deeds that Mordecai saved the king's life. See, see the king could have asked for anything in that moment. He could have asked for food. He could have asked for music. He could have asked for drinks. He could have asked for women. But out of all of the things he asked for is the book of deeds. And it so happens to open up to that exact page. The king says, what has been done for him? Speaking of Mordecai. And just as they were speaking about it, Haman enters the court. And I'll speak about perfect timing. The king asks Haman, what should be done to the man the king delights to honor? And Haman pretty much says, put your royal robes on him, put your crown on him, and put him on your horse, uh, put, put him on the horse of the king, and that your most important man lead him through the city, proclaiming, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. The funny thing about this is that the whole time Haman thinks that the king is thinking about him. The thing, the th then the king says, go, let it be done to Mordecai and leave nothing out that you have mentioned. And I can imagine Haman's face, just like a, just a straight face turning red from embarrassment. He has to do this and he, and he, and he thought it was going to be for him. He has to take his enemy, take him around the city and proclaim this is what is done to the man who the king delights to honor. And after this is done, he is ashamed and he goes home. And he tells his people everything that happened. And his wife pretty much tells him, if this happened, then you're doomed. Like you're not going to win this fight. This shows that surely the Lord humbles the one who exalts himself and exalts the one who humbles himself. The Lord is turning every circumstance to the favor of his people and shows just how quickly things can change. From night to day, you see the shift. The first few chapters, Haman feels like he's on top of the world. And now he is humbled and ashamed, having to give honor to his enemy, Mordecai. To us, this might seem insignificant, as Haman is just doing what he was told to do by the king. But the blow to his prideful heart is too much for him to handle. While they were talking, the king's eunuchs show up to bring Haman to the second banquet Esther prepared for them. And while they were drinking wine, the king asked Esther again, what is your request? Then Esther spills the beans. 
She tells the king about the plan to eliminate the Jews, which are her people, and the king is furious. The king asks, who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? Esther says, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. I can imagine him pale, terrified, not knowing what to do. And the king is so angry, he has to go out for a walk in the garden. But when he comes back, he sees Haman at the feet of Esther, and he thinks he is trying to assault her. And he is furious. The eunuchs cover Haman's face, and Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, tells the king about the gallows that Haman prepared for Mordecai. And behold, the king gives the command to hang Haman on that specific gallow, which Haman, Haman intended for Mordecai. The tables have certainly turned on Haman. But what do we really see here? We see the providential orderings of circumstances by the Lord. Why did God, God allow Haman to rise to power in the first place and to make a decree to destroy the Jews? It was to show his redemptive power and to demonstrate his glory. The Lord accomplishes his perfect will no matter what. He is the divine architect ordering every detail. The Lord is, is, is the one who calls insomnia upon the king. He providentially moved the hand of the person opening the book of records to open right to where Mordecai is mentioned. It was the Lord who moved the heart of the king to favor Esther. Matthew, Matthew Henry says, The providence of God rules over the smallest concerns of men. There was an intentional order of events that led the people of God to be in trouble, which led to a deeper dependence upon God, which led to the deliverance of God's people. Now, even though Haman has been killed, the danger of the Jews being destroyed is still at hand, which leads us to our third point, the defeat. After Haman is hung on the gallows, King Asuerus gives to Queen Esther the house of Haman. And this does not mean Haman's family, but in fact it means all that Haman owned. His goods, his property, his riches. And then Queen Esther then gives it to Mordecai, who would then steward it for her. We can see the vanity of laying up treasures on earth through Haman. Everything that he worked for, looking with pride at all that he had, patting himself on the back for all the riches that he had, for it had only been given to someone else. It is vanity. Now, even though Haman is dead, the threat of the Jews being destroyed is still at hand. According to Persian law, once an edict is sealed with the, king, with the king's ring, it cannot be overturned. The decree cannot be reversed, but then the king gives his signet ring to Mordecai, and Mordecai makes a second edict one that states that the Jews of every province can defend themselves against their attackers and their enemies, which include women and children. Mordecai has this decree written in different languages and sent out to every province from India to Ethiopia and sends it out to everyone. That on the day the enemies of the Jews rise up against them, they will be able to defend themselves and take the plunder of their enemies and the fear of the Jews falls upon the people. The Jews were glad. They had joy because they have experienced the redemption and the, del and the deliverance of the Lord. 
when that day came and says that no one could stand against them, being the Jews. Those that thought they were going to be able to dominate and overcome the Jews were sadly mistaken. The Jews struck down every person who tried to go against them, and it was a great victory for the people of God. Now it states in chapter 9 that the ten sons of Haman were killed and then hung up on the gallows. This is an interesting thing to see. Not only is the hanging on the gallows a sign to the people that the Lord takes vengeance upon his enemies and the enemies of his people, but if you remember from the beginning of the sermon when I mentioned what God told Moses about the Amalekites, he tells Moses in chapter 17, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. It is possible that these 10 sons of Haman are his last offspring. If that is true, the lineage of the Amalekites ends there. But, through the, but we can see from Moses uh, and, and, and onward through the years, God brings his judgment upon the Amalekites, keeping true his words that he will utterly blot their name out. At the end of the book of Esther, after the great victory of the Jews, it shows us that Mordecai had been promoted to second in the kingdom. True are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 23, verse 12. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In conclusion to this, I want to look at two quick ways the Lord displays his glory through the villain, Haman. The first one, this struggle between Haman, the descendant of the Amalekites, and the Jews does not start in Exodus 17. In fact, this goes back to the beginning chapters of Genesis in chapter 3, verse 15. And it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This has been war since the beginning. Satan waging war against God's people and the seed of the woman. Can you imagine if Haman had actually succeeded in bringing the Jews to complete destruction? The line to the Messiah would have been cut off and no savior would have been born. We would still be walking in darkness. The grace of God would not have reached us if Christ had not been born. But instead, God raises Haman to bring about his glory. God uses Haman as an instrument first to make his people dependent upon himself. Secondly, he shows his, pe his people that he is sovereignly in control of every single detail and decision made on earth and that he can deliver his, pe his people through providential occurrings. The name of God is not mentioned in the book of Esther, not once. But as John MacArthur said, you can see God thundering through the book of Esther. Every single minute circumstance, dealing, and events is detailed according to the purpose of his will to bring about his glory, and indeed, he is sovereign. And the second way that we see God shows his glory through Haman is a demonstration of God's intentional redemption. As Haman rose to power, he tried to bring destruction upon the Jews. The Lord used this to show his people his intentional redemption. 
when you see through this book that every circumstance that led to Haman being killed and the Jews being delivered was the intentional changing of circumstances through the hand of God. He intentionally saves his people from death with his saving power. But this only points to a greater form of intentional redemption that occurs later on in the scriptures. And let's turn quickly to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 9. And it is um, on a monitor if you don't have your Bibles. And it says, and it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is the climax of how intentional the redemption of God goes. His son Jesus empties himself and takes the form of a servant. He is obedient even to the point of death and dies on the cross for our sin. Do you see how intentional this is? Jesus leaves heaven to come and live among sinners. He lives a life fully pleasing to the Lord. And then knowing that the will of, of the Father is for him to die on the cross for sinners, he obeys and is hung on that cross and takes on the full wrath of God. For what? To save us from an eternal spiritual death. So every time that decree of death is shown to our face, we can say, no, no, no. A different decree has been made. Someone has already taken my place. He has saved us. From heaven he came and sought her. From heaven he came and sought his church. He sought his people. If you think Haman is a wicked person, I want you to know that none of us are better than him. We are in desperate need of Christ. If you are not in Christ, there are two things I tell you. Repent and believe. You have sinned against the holy God, and eternal death is upon you. But if you turn away from that sin and put your trust in Christ to have, to have taken your place, you also will be saved. If you have already done so, my brothers and sisters, then let us rejoice and be glad in the redemption God has given us. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your providence. You exalt and humble who you desire. Help us to see that you are in control of everything that happens and that not one atom or molecule moves without your orders. Help us to trust in your wise counsel. Thank you for your intentional redemption through Christ. Amen.